Have you ever noticed that there seems to be a group of people uh, that are, and I think the number of these people is starting to grow, um, but they're the kind of people that just want to do the minimum to get by in life. You'll know them when they show up to work because if your, if your starting time is 8 o'clock, they come in and they punch the clock right when it hits 8 o'clock. Boom, they hit the ticket. Or maybe they come in 10 or 15 minutes late and hit the ticket, and then they're late. And then when it's time for lunch, they kind of make up an excuse or a reason that they have to leave for lunch early. So they leave early, they clock out early, and then when it's time to come back to work, they clock in late again. And then when it's time to go home, they punch the clock to get out early again. And really what they're doing is they're just trying to do the minimal amount of work possible and yet receive a paycheck. What they're looking for is actually maybe somebody who they work with, a coworker, who will come along and they can go like, hey, I'm having a real problem with this project. Could you do it for me? And so they're able to slough off a lot of their work onto other people and get other people to do their work. They just want to do the minimal requirements for keeping a job. And here's the craziest part, is they get really upset that they're not getting a raise in pay. But believe me, when, when something really goes right in their department, they're the first ones to step up in line and take the credit for it. They're minimalists. And they do as minimal as they, I mean, the least that they can do. They, they just don't ever want to do more. They just do the bare requirements. And they just want to kind of coast through life. Matter of fact, they're kind of known as rule breakers. They really don't want to follow the rules. They think the rules are for other people to follow, not for them. On the other side of this spectrum, we have what we would call the legalists. And the legalists are the people who always follow the rules no matter what. And when they get into a job, what they want to do is they want to get a job description from their boss so they know exactly what is expected of them. And by the way, what happens with them, they're very much like the minimalist in the fact that they will only do what's on their job description. They're not going to do any more. They're not going to help out in any other place. If something else is going on in another department that could use their help, they're going, sorry, it's not on my job description. I can't do that. I'm not going to do that work. No, I'm just going to do what I've been told to do. I'm going to obey the rules, and I'm going to be a rule follower. And one of the the problems is, is that when they, they start to be that kind of a person of being a rule follower, they don't, I mean, it's hard for, if they're reading a book, they'll never go back to, to the back and read the ending to see how it, be, how it finishes before finishing it. They would never skip to the middle and read a middle chapter out of a book and then go back to the beginning because that's breaking the rules of reading a book. You start at the beginning and you finish at the end. And so they've got this whole continuum going on of, of how they see life. They have the tendency to be judgmental and critical of those who do not follow the rules according to them. Now, the problem is, is that when you bring each of these people into the spiritual continuum, they are the ones who view a spiritual life this way. The minimalists would be the person who wants grace but has a propensity to abuse grace by saying something like this. It really doesn't matter what I do as long as I'm not hurting anybody else. And by the way, even if I sin and I do sin knowingly and I plan that sin out, 
if I ask Jesus to forgive me, he has, he's obligated to forgive me because I asked him to forgive me. So what's the big deal? That's the rule breaker. That's the minimalist. That's the person who is a grace abuser. And then on the other side of it, you have the legalist who would say something like this. You need to obey every rule and every command that's written in the Bible because if you don't, then God will never be pleased with your efforts towards Him. You will never know the full extent of God's love because you are not obeying the rules, the law. Now here's what happens. Churches across the United States have a tendency to produce one or the other of these more times than not. We produce the religious person that is known as the legalist. We end up producing too often rule followers instead of Jesus followers. Christians, and I use that in quotations, who are mechanical, unfeeling, joyless, lifeless, fearful, judgmental people who end up mostly being known for what they are against rather than what they're for. We wonder, why don't people outside the church come and join the church and be like us? Jesus knew all about this religion problem. And by the way, if you're new to our church, and I mean new like you've only been coming for maybe six months or less, I, I want you to know, we absolutely refuse to be religious in this building. We are not a religious group of people. I want you to know that. Because what religion does is religion says, here's your list of do's and don'ts. You, you have to do all these things in order to prove, to, to find acceptance from God. The problem with, with being religious and, and all the doing is you never know when you've done enough. You have to keep doing and doing and doing. We're more interested in you developing a relationship with the Father through the Son by the empowerment of the Holy Spirit. That's what we want here in this building. That's what we want of the people that attend this church. We want you to step in relationship. We want you to have this kind of a relationship, a vertical relationship with the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. We want you to have that fully well-developed in your life, but we also want you to have a horizontal relationship. We want you to be in relationship with the people in this building and the people out in the community. We've been told by, by Jesus that the two greatest commandments are this, is that you love God with all of your being and you love your neighbor like yourself. Who's your neighbor? Anybody who walks in this country with us. You don't even know them and they're your neighbor. So that was a little side note. That was 50 cents worth right there for you. So really, what's happening here is Jesus knows all about this re religious problem that we're going to have. This didn't catch him or the Father or the Spirit by surprise. And, and so the, the big question that actually haunts us about this is, and, and what we're looking at this morning is, the big question is, who's a good person? If you're a minimalist or you're a legalist, are you good people? How do you define a good person? What makes someone truly good? And you know, the problem is we can never get away from that question because we talk about that all the time. We say, well, he's really a good guy or she's really a, 
a really nice lady. I hate to tell you this, but our definition of good and our definition of nice fail in comparison to the definition that God lays out for us. And so what we're looking at is Jesus to prepare us to get ready for um, what he's going to be unpacking through the rest of the Sermon on the Mount. That's what the Sermon on the Mount is going to do. He, he has given us the Beatitudes, these beautiful attitudes that we're supposed to have incorporated into our life that we live by. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. That's the starting point in our lives. And then what he wants us to do is after we've understood those things, then we've got those parts um, incorporated into the way that we live life, then what we do is we become salt. We become the salt of the earth. But don't lose your saltiness, is what, is what Jesus says. You can do that. You can lose your saltiness. And so we need to remain salty people, as it were, because as we're salty, then we become the light of the world. And we're, our light isn't something that we manufacture on our own. It is generated by the Holy Spirit who works inside of us to pro- project that to the world. And when the light of Jesus shines, it shines into darkness and people have an idea of what it means to follow Christ. And so Jesus has set all this up through the, the teaching on the Sermon of the Mount. And now we come to a, a pivotal place because he's going to talk about who's really a good person. How do you know who a good person is? And, and then out of this, this little passage we're looking at this morning, Matthew 5, 17 through 20, the rest of the Sermon on the Mount is going to be unpacked from these couple of verses. So here's what they say. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law of the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until, it, until all is accomplished. Therefore, who, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called the least in the kingdom of the heaven. Whoever does them and teaches them will be called the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Now, the... The climatic statement in all of this, in this little section here, is where Jesus says, For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter into the kingdom of heaven. And the whole rest of this Matthew 5 will, and beyond is really unpacking that statement. The righteousness that has to, that has to exceed that of the Pharisees. Now listen, if you don't know anything about the Pharisees, that probably doesn't hit you very deeply. But if you understand anything about the Pharisees in the time of Jesus' ministry, this was like a sucker punch to the gut because all these people are gathered around Jesus saying, we want to know what it looks like to have the kingdom of heaven come down here, up there, down here. That's what we're looking for. We're looking for the kingdom of God. When you read Matthew, you hear Jesus saying this all the time. The kingdom of heaven is like. The kingdom of God is like. And that's what he keeps telling us. And so now everybody's going like, all right, he's going to reveal to us what it looks like to have the kingdom of heaven here and now. And all of a sudden, 
all those people who are listening, sitting around Jesus, the disciples and the crowd, they're going, our righteousness has to exceed that of the Pharisees. Let me tell you something about the Pharisees. The Pharisees would fast twice a week. They memorized, not a verse or two, but the entire Bible. They never looked at a woman. I don't mean that they didn't ever look, you know, lustfully at a woman. They never looked at a woman. If a woman was coming down the street, they would look the other way. If their wife was with them in public, which rarely happened, they would be walking two blocks behind. They would never interact with a woman in public on any level at any time because that was the standard that they set out. And, it, and then so what it looks like from the outside is that the, the Pharisees have set this standard for righteousness up here that nobody can attain. And now Jesus comes along and he says, if you want to know righteousness, if you want the kingdom of God, your righteousness has to exceed the righteousness of the Pharisees. And everybody went like, oh, nuts. It's just not going to happen. How do I get to that place? How do I get to the place where my righteousness is going to exceed that? Because that's really what they thought Jesus was saying, is that, that Jesus says that your righteousness has to be better, higher, greater than the Pharisees. That is not what he's saying. Here's what Jesus was, was it's the religious leaders, they have a lot of righteousness is what Jesus is saying. And you need more than what they have. But they don't have the righteousness that God's talking about. They have a different righteousness. They have a self-made righteousness. They're self-righteous people. It's not the real kind of righteousness. Matter of fact, here's how Jesus actually described the Pharisees at one point. He said, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside they're full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisees, first clean the inside of the cup and the plate, that the outside may also be clean. I'm telling you right now, Jesus was not giving a, hey, let's be friends speech right here. Because he goes on to say, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. You are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and uncleanness. So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. You see, what it is, is, is that when people would walk past the cemeteries in, in the old days with, with Jesus, they'd have these, these big monuments set up. You can find a mosque set up in, in, in um, cemeteries today, and, and they're beautiful. Matter of fact, when we were in San Francisco, we did a really morbid thing one day, Lorinda, Cody, and I. We went and we drove and we found this private cemetery. And it was, wow. The, the little buildings that they put dead people's bones in probably cost more than my house. They're made out of granite or marble. They're like mind-boggling. And we're going like, wow, these places are really cool. But the, the really sad part is, it's just a bunch of dead people in there. You know what happens when you open up one of those things? It's stinky. That's what it is. It's stinky. It's got the stank going on. And, and, you, and, and yet this is, it's a beautiful... That's, that's what Jesus is saying. 
He's going like, you Pharisees really think you're something. The outside of your life looks really, really attractive. It looks really good. It looks really righteous. It looks really holy. It looks like something everybody wants to to be like. But the problem is, is the inside of your life, it's got the stank going on. It's like nothing but deadness inside of you. You've got nothing alive. There's no righteousness. There's no holiness of God. It's all pretend. And this is how you're trying to lead people on. So what Jesus is talking about and what it means to be a good person is these religious leaders define a good person in the terms of external compliance with the law. It's just what you can do on the outside to make other people think you're a really good person. We want to portray ourselves better than what we are. See, this is the condition of the human heart. We want people to think we're way better than what we really are, but we want to talk about people and make them look worse than what they really are. That's what we do. Look at me, I'm so good. I got my stuff together. I got my poop in a group, but that guy over there, He's got the stank going on because he's dirty, nasty on the inside. He don't love Jesus. He's pretending. Mm. He's no good. So, what they really were, the, the Pharisees were doing, was they were defining a good person as somebody who does the right thing. They avoid doing the wrong thing, somebody who follows the rules. St. Augustine, a few centuries after Jesus, had a wonderful phrase for this. He talked about what he called the glittering vices. The glittering vices. A glittering vice is a quality that looks like it's, it's a virtue. It's, it, it really looks virtuous. But it makes me proud, arrogant, and unloving. And what it's really doing is destroying my soul. Glittering vices. A lot of things are, that are good in themselves can become glittering vices. I can have correct doctrine. I can have hold of right political ideology. My sexuality is just right. I have a good work ethic. I have a glittering family. I do what Jesus says, but it's possible to focus so much on doing the right things that you fail to become the right person. Doing the right things does not make you the right person. So I'm wondering, do you have any glittering vices? I I know I do. And here's the thing, focusing on external compliance neglects the condition of the heart of the, the inner life. You know, in the legal, human legal things of life, for us in this country, our legal authorities deal with behavioral compliance. People who are really bad people, they get thrown into prison because they're supposed to change their behavior in order to be released back into society to be good citizens again. The problem is behavioral modification never works. It never has and it never will. But that's kind of what is going on is, is that, that we think that behavior modification, if I can just make myself look a whole lot better then, and, and I'm, I'm going to be in compliance with the law of God, 
People are going to like me. They're going to think a lot more and a lot better of me. But what God wants is he wants a transformed heart. He says, it's it's what Jesus is talking about, is, is that the compliance to the outward things doesn't really matter one little hoot if your heart is wicked and deceitful, which all hearts are, by the way. It's wicked and deceitful. Who can know it? That's why it's not a one-time deal to have your heart transformed by Jesus. It's a continual process of having Jesus come and look at us and take the microscope of, of fine inspection and take a look into our lives. And he's starting to nitpick on the areas of our life that are keeping us from growing spiritually with Jesus. In, in order to keep us, you know, there are things in our life that stop the transformation process because we're allowing that sinful behavior to continue to go on. We're trying to modify it. And Jesus says it can't be modified. It has to radically be eliminated so that you can be transformed to be looking more like the Son of Christ, the Son of God. The problem that we face is that with the wrong kind of righteousness, we can be guilty of thinking we've got something that we really don't have. It generates even great pressure on others in our society because when we start to live this external life in front of other people, other people are going like, that's who I want to look like. I want to look like that guy, that woman. She is a Proverbs 31 woman. Man, she has got her stuff together. She rises up in the morning and calls her husband blessed. Who does that anymore? They rise up in the morning and they call their husband. Woo! And so we have this external thing going on where we're trying to appease other people, other people's view. And what it does is it sets now an external standard for everybody else to adhere to. They need to look like that guy, like that woman, like that family. They need to have the external goodness all going on. But the problem is, is when you get home behind the closed doors, all the ugliness of the heart comes out and there's no transformation going on. And Jesus isn't, isn't that interested on what this looks like. He's interested on what this looks like. The New Testament uses what were wonderful, attractive words to describe goodness. And we need those words, but those words have all taken baggage in our day so that they don't sound so desirable to us. Imagine you were going on a blind date. Okay, women, someone set you up with a guy. Okay, nobody's married right now. We're pretending. Don't take your ring off and go like, hey, I'm going to get a date. Not going to happen. We're pretending. So that's what happens. And so you've got this thing where someone's setting you up with this blind date. And so you ask the guy that's setting this up, and you go, hey, what's she like? And he uses words like this to describe her. She's really sanctified. She's holy. She is saintly. And I would even say she is righteous. You mean like a righteous babe? No, no, just righteous. See, most people are not drawn to those words. Those are not the words that we want to define who we are. You know, you want the words like, she, like, she's beautiful. She has long blonde hair, blue eyes. 
She's Scandinavian. She eats lutefisk. <laughs> That's so attractive. Mmm. People thought what Jesus was saying as he was teaching that maybe because he was critiquing the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees, what he was really saying is rules don't matter. It's more fun to break them. But then, here's the question. Do you want to marry a rule breaker? Do you want to work for a rule breaker? Is the answer, is this the answer to life? Do you want to raise little rule breakers? Do you understand what that looks like and, and the implications of that? Now listen to this. If you are undergoing brain surgery, do you want to hear your neurosurgeon's last words before they put you under? Hey man, just wanted to let you know. I kind of cheated and partied my way through med school. Right now, I'm kind of wishing I hadn't, but, well, you know what? Wish me luck, would you? <laughs> you don't want brain surgeons, heart surgeons, any kind of surgeon who is a D-plus student. That's not who you want operating on you. You want the guy that was the overachiever, A-plus, did all the right things for the right reasons. So rule-breaking isn't the way to go. That's why Jesus starts this section out on verse 17, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. Now, Jesus says that because since he critiqued the righteousness of the Pharisees, people thought maybe he was trying to abolish the law of the prophets. Maybe that was the way to live. Maybe we can just cut corners, take shortcuts, seize the day, follow our own desires and bliss, enjoy a good life. By the way, isn't that what grace is for? Jesus says no. Here's what he says in verse 18. Not an iota or dot will pass from the law until, until all is accomplished. In other words, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of the pen by any measure means will disappear from the law. In other words, the law was given to us for our own good. And the law rightly understood and fulfilled is the greatest gift God gave to the human race outside of Jesus Christ himself. He's the living law. Jesus is. He's not the one that said, don't do it anymore. He didn't say, just live in grace. He's, he, remember, Jesus, when he came, he came full of grace and truth. Jesus is grace and truth, not one or the other. And so the law of God, rightly understood, humbly studied, and practiced through the power of the Holy Spirit is a gift of God to the human race that is sweeter than honey and it's more precious than gold. It's not about following rules. It's about following Jesus. It's not about breaking rules. It's about following Jesus. And the clarion call of Jesus is right here in the Sermon on the Mount in the sixth chapter when Jesus said, but seek first the kingdom of God and his what? His righteousness. Now, if we're going to see the kingdom of God, there could be no other word that would follow that except and his righteousness. Those two go together. Kingdom of God and righteousness. Righteousness is simply what your life looks like when you're living in the reality of the kingdom because the goal of your life is not rule following. 
It's not sin avoidance. It's the fullness of life. The only way to live in the kingdom is in the fullness of life that Christ gives you. In other words, you cannot avoid sin by trying to avoid sin. That's what people often misunderstand about religion. They think that religion is going to help you avoid sin. All all religion does is it straps you down with a heavy burden that you can't bear because you're always trying to do better, trying to do better, trying to do better. And, And so religion tells you what you must do is you must avoid sin to be a good religious person. And it's all about doing and not being. And the big issue is that you are never know when you've done enough. Here's what, Jesus said. Here's what Jesus didn't say, first of all. He didn't say, I have come that you might avoid sin and avoid it with gritting teeth. What he did say is, I have come that you might have life and have it with abundance running out of your ears. It's the overflow of your life. That's what abundance means. Abundance doesn't mean I just filled my tank. Your tank isn't, you don't have an abundance when your tank is full, your tank is full. You have an abundance when there's an overflow. Now, believe me, you do not want to overflow your tank at the gas station. They frown on that. And then if you put your cigarette out down on the ground right there, you're going to have bigger problems. So stop smoking. You know who you are. So, the, the failure to step in and find the abundance of life with Jesus is the failure to attain a deeply satisfying life. And it's always results when you don't have the, the abundance of Jesus in your life, the result of it is this, is that it results in temptation looking good to you. All of a sudden, those things that you were tempted with, that you said no to, all of a sudden, because you're not in the abundance and the overflow of your life with Jesus, that temptation all of a sudden looks really good. And what follows temptation? When we give into it, sin. And then we hate ourselves for it. So the only way to fulfill the law is to live in the abundance, in the grace of the kingdom, with the presence of Jesus, who died on the cross to forgive us and rose again to give us hope. Now this week, I don't want, this week, let's, I want you to try something this week. This week, don't be a rule follower. Don't be a rule breaker. Live in the abundance of the kingdom and practice surpassing goodness unless your righteousness surpasses that of the rule followers. This week, surpass it. Don't give outward compliance out of the abundance of kingdom of God, His presence, His power, and strength in our midst. Let love and joy flow out of you toward others. This week, when you're at home, instead of doing the minimum you need in order to avoid trouble in your home, step out and do the maximum in the abundance of the overflow of your life and live in the kingdom of God at your home. Live in the abundance of the kingdom. Offer surpassing righteousness. When you go to work this week, whether you're paid a lot or you're paid a little, don't just follow the rules. 
So many people, so many Christ followers, Christians, they're just clock-punching, rule-following, conformists. What's the least I can do? Not you. This week at work, step into the kingdom, offer surpassing goodness. This is the way Paul describes this in Colossians. Whatever you do, work heartily. That means with your whole heart. That's surpassing goodness. As for the Lord, not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ, for the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. Here's the problem in our lives. We have a, a great way of compartmentalizing our lives. What we do is we, we have our, what I would identify as our church and spiritual life that, that culminate together here at this time for the majority of us. Some of us also have an extracurricular activity called small group during the week where we come yet again and we gather with a smaller group of Christ followers and we talk about spiritual things. And we have those two things that we've compartmentalized into our life. And yet we never want to let our work, we never want to let our family, we never want to have our um, activity time be interfered with our spiritual life. Our spiritual life is reserved primarily for Sunday morning from 10 o'clock, or for some of you, 10.30, to 11.30, quarter to 12, and on a good Sunday, 12 o'clock. And, and so that's what we compartmentalize as our worship time to God, our corporate gathering where we come together, and this is where we are. We've compartmentalized it. But it's interesting to me how, and I'm going to spank you just a little bit here. I'm warning you, so plug your ears if you don't like it. We'll let our, our family life, our work life, our recreational life, our other life interfere with the things of God on a regular basis. They come in, if all of a sudden something looks more entertaining, looks more fun, looks like it could be um, just even different than church, we're all in for that. But when it comes to the spiritual things of God interfering on our time, we go, well, God surely wouldn't want the spiritual stuff, church things, to interfere with my family time. After all, family is everything to Jesus, and so it's got to be everything to me, and I'm certainly sure he doesn't want my spiritual life to interfere with my family. I don't think I would be so sure about that if I were you. I recently listened to a sermon on bringing an acceptable sacrifice to God in worship because that's what we feel like we're to do. We, when we come, we want to bring some kind of a sacrifice to God. We look at maybe sacrificing our time to be here with Jesus. Some of us are going to sacrifice some of our money to be here this morning. We're going to give a tithe and an offering. Some of us are going to sacrifice um, our comfortableness by engaging and talking with people we don't know, we don't like, we don't want to like. But we're going to sacrifice that for Jesus' sake. And so we come in and we, we bring what we think is this sacrifice of worship to God. 
And basically what that, that sermon was saying was that worship has very little to do with our singing here on a Sunday morning. Very little. Minuscule part of our worship. Worship is what we do with our lives every day. Where people here, there are people here who bring their worship to God in a much different way than we would normally think about worship. For instance, the ladies who come early on Sunday mornings and go back over to the coffee bar and they make coffee, that's an act of service for them of worship to God because they're serving Jesus by serving you. Remember, they have this vertical thing going on this way with Jesus. They're coming and they're loving Jesus back there as they make the coffee and they get it all prepared. They get everything set out. And then when it's gone, they go and make more for you. They never complain. It's an act of worship and they're worshiping God back there the whole time. That's what they do. And they don't ever want anybody to acknowledge them. Sorry, I just did. (laughs) Suck it up, buttercup. We have people over in the kids' ministry area, in the nursery back there. We have people who are leading youth group. We have people who are serving as small group leaders. We have people who serve on the worship team. We have deaconesses who set up the the whole thing for communion and and make sure meals are taken care of. We have deacons who are taking care of the the building and making sure the snow is removed. And, And they do all this stuff. And guess what? That's a greater act of worship than you standing up and singing a song and raising your hand to Jesus. The Levites did that in the Old Testament. They assisted the priest, Aaron and the priests, in the service of the temple. And they, they swept the rooms as worship to God. They put the, the, bread, the, the, the measurements for bread together as an act of worship to God. They serve worshiping God. That's what God's calling us to do. Our righteous life is what is the acceptable worship we bring to God. So whatever you're doing, whether you're building something, teaching students, selling a product, chasing cows or goats, whatever it is, Do it with surpassing goodness. You ask God this question. God, how can you help me? How can we be partners together to solve problems, to help my coworkers to work with joy? This week when you go to work, um, followers of Jesus ought to be the greatest workers because we're offering, offering surpassing goodness and a sacrifice, acceptable sacrifice of worship to God. This week, when you talk to somebody, just don't go on autopilot. Don't just give socially acceptable words. Speak to them in surpassing goodness. Encourage them. Love on them. It doesn't have to be perfect. They'll get the idea of what you're saying to them. Remember, if you're a follower of Jesus, the aim is not behavioral modification. Jesus put the distinction like this in Luke chapter 6. A good man produces good deeds from a good heart, and an evil man produces evil deeds from his hidden wickedness. Whatever is in the heart overflows out of the speech. In other words, my aim, your aim, must not be 
to just say good things and avoid saying bad things. Our aim is to have God change the automatic flow of thoughts and desires inside of us to make that flow of thoughts and desires be truthful, humble, gracious, hopeful, and brave so that good works naturally come out of us. Here's the challenge this week for you. This is it. Uh, I'm closing it off and we're going to go into communion in just one minute. So here's the challenge. If you work with other Christ followers, especially the ones who attend here with you, then starting tomorrow morning when you're at work, know that your fellow Christ followers are going to help you be the most righteous person in Jesus that you can be and what Jesus is calling us to be. Your words matter. Your actions matter. Your thoughts matter. The way that you work around those who don't know Jesus is the direct link of the depth of your love for God. Proclamation without accountability is worthless and it will not lead to righteousness. So you're accountable to your fellow Christ followers. Bringing to your workplace God and your acceptable sacrifice of worship to him this week. Now listen, some of you go like, I work by myself. Okay, well then you need someone that you're accountable to. Not just because if you're not talking to anybody, you don't work with anybody else, and you work by yourself, you still have thoughts that you think, you still have deeds that you act, because there's a whole other group of people out there who are watching what you're doing, because they want to know if you are different. So, Tap somebody on the shoulder and go like, I want you to call me sometime between Tuesday and Thursday and ask me how I've done this week at bringing an acceptable sacrifice of worship to God through my thoughts, through my process. Am I being a a legalist or am I just trying to get by with the minimal amount? Because Jesus is calling us to step in and follow him. But following without accountability is like... Well, you use your imagination. I'm done using mine. It would have gotten me in trouble right there. (laughs) Who do you want to be? Do you want to be a person who reflects the glory of Jesus? Or do you want to be the person... It just barely skates by and is hoping to coast or is just doing what you have to do in order to hope to appease God. Jesus is calling. You answer the call. Father, we thank you that your words are true to us. We thank you that you have spoken directly to our hearts. I pray that we would not just listen to these words and then walk away and go, oh, that was good, but that your spirit would poke us and prod us and teach us and guide us into what it means to be followers of Jesus who live their lives in righteousness, who are being transformed day by day. We thank you that you're, you're good to us even when we don't deserve it. And even now as we get ready to step up, Father, to receive this Lord, the Lord's Supper, we would simply ask that you would remind us of the areas in which you want to transform us into more of the image of Jesus. We pray these things in Jesus' great name. Amen.